On March 24, 1968, Erlingus Flight 712 was lost in the Irish Sea at Tusker Rock. Desmond Peter Walls, business executive and father of 12, was among the many never found. His son Desi was 19 at the time. That's just the backdrop. This is a story of love. It is 2006, October 17th. I'm sitting with my back to the window, watching Mammy's laboured breathing, knowing she's about to leave us. Maybe tonight, if not tomorrow, Wednesday. She has said her goodbyes during the miracle weekend just gone. Claire had been the last of the twelve to arrive on Saturday. She sat by the bed looking closely at Ma, who'd been sleeping deeply for days, almost comatose. Claire leans in and says, I love you, Mammy. Ma opens her eyes and whispers, I love you too, my baby. Baby. It brings me back to long ago when we were baby Claire and baby Desi, to distinguish us from Mammy Claire and Daddy Desi. Mammy turns in the bed, catches our eyes one by one and calls us to her. She forgets none of the twelve. Why would she? As I go to her, she calls out, Desi! Her whole being lighting up as she seems to see, not me, but you, her lost love, her Desi, my dad. A moment later, back with me, she says, Desi, I love you, my pet. As she hugs me, I blubber and dribble all over her. Then it's Kevin's turn to say goodbye. I think we all know that's what we're doing. Then it's Peter, Patricia, Breathe, Eileen, Christine, Paddy, Siobhan, Colette and John. She tries to stay with us through the rest of Saturday, through Sunday and even fights hard on Monday because she senses that's what we want. But now it's Tuesday and we know she's not going to open her eyes again. She doesn't need to. Look at all you've done since you were a girl. Look at the huge difference you have made. Baby Claire is five years old. I am four. We are supposed to be asleep in bed, but we have tiptoed down the stairs. The stairway is walled in on two sides, so as we sit on the fourth step from the bottom, we're hidden from view, but we can clearly hear the music and laughter coming from Granny Wall's front room. Granny is at the piano. Suddenly the door of the room opens. It's a beautiful we start to scurry back upstairs, but it's only Doherty. Uncle Doherty, the cornflakes king, going to the kitchen for a late night bowl of breakfast cereal. She dropped me like a hot potato. Just because I don't know. As Doherty's singing fades into the kitchen, inside the room we hear Mammy's voice. I heard the children singing and ever as they sang. We thought the voice of angels from heaven in answer rang. Now you are at the piano playing one of your own songs, a march. This is the song of the sunrise. Next thing, Granny is back on the piano stool, and I know how she got there. She stands beside you saying, let me show you something, dear. Then she swings her substantial hips and sweeps you clean off the stool. Claire and I bury our faces giggling at the thought of it. When we look up, there's a dark figure at the bottom of the stairs, a smile on its conspiratorial face. 
Aren't you two supposed to be in bed? Claire answers because she's smarter than I am. Yes, we were in bed, Daddy, but the music kept keeping us awake. You want to hear a story? Rumpelstiltskin! You carry us up, one under each arm, throw us onto the bed, tickle us, then tuck us in. You tell us the story about how the king marries the miller's daughter because he thinks she can spin straw into gold, but she can't. It's really a little imp has been spinning the gold for her. And now that she's become queen, as a reward for her work, the little imp wants her first baby. The queen is so upset. So the imp offers a way she might keep her baby. If she can guess his name, which of course he's sure she cannot. But then, the very next day, one of the queen's servants, while passing through the woods, overhears the imp. He's dancing around a bonfire, singing. The queen will never win the game, for Rumpelstiltskin is my name. So that evening, when the queen declares, Rumpelstiltskin is your name, the imp says, I wish I told you, I wish I told you. He gets mad and stamps his leg so hard into the ground it stays there. We finished the story for you. He hopped away on one leg and they never saw him again. You kiss us goodnight and hop away on one leg yourself, down the stairs and into Granny Wall's front room. As the door opens, we hear Grandad sing. A duck has to live in a swamp, and a swamp is sometimes damp. You may think that this is the end. Well, it is. Da 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 it's the summer of 64. You've driven me to the athletics meeting in Bantir. We've brought a few supporters, Kevin, Peter, Patricia, Breathe, that gang in the upper middle section of the family known as the kids, ranging from about eight years old to 12. Their job is to jump up and down and shout. My job is to win the Cork Under 16 Mile Championship. It's not that you're saying I have to win, but the disappointment in your face if I don't win could be spotted by a one-eyed jackdaw field away. I explained that Hennessy beat me the previous week over the half-mile and he should whip me over a mile. And Michael Murphy, who was third that day, had taken a wrong turning and was still only a yard behind me at the finish. I'm up against it. But you say, do Hennessy and Murphy have a carload of supporters driving all the way up from Glownthorn to Bantier? Probably not. Hennessy sets a fierce pace. He's a small, tough and dogged lad from Yall. My good friend Michael Murphy, tall and strong, is right on my shoulder. I see your face quietly confident. You're standing at the finishing line. The kids are looking to you to see should they be getting excited yet. Through the second lap, not much changes. Down the back straight on the third lap, I move past a few tiring runners. Murphy's still on my shoulder. I can hear him breathing. I'm now just a few yards off the hard-driving Hennessy. We approach the bell and the kids are jumping up and down. I can still hear Murphy breathing heavier than before. At the bell, you give one sharp, Come on, Desi! Hennessy picks up the pace, but I stay with him. Into the back straight, I stretch out, getting every inch for every stride. I can no longer hear Murphy's breathing, and now I'm pulling past Hennessy. Before we reach the top bend, I'm in front, but only just. He's driving his league leg into my trailing foot, trying to run me off the track. Four times he hits me, a fifth time he hits me. Then he falls short on the sixth, and turning into the straight, I drive for the line. I see your reaction as you realize I'm coming home. The kids are doing somersaults, but you're just standing there, a face on you, like the proudest dad in the world. Hold it and print.
Mammy tried to teach me to drive. Desi, watch out. There's a bus on your left. Oh, dear, you just changed lanes without indicating. There was nothing in the lane I was entering. You'll fail your test that way. Why, I can drive. <laughs> oh, Desi, when you grow up, you may finally understand. We can't do all we feel like doing. We can only do what they say we can. We can only do what they say we can. And I know who they are. Never mind who they are. Keep your hands at ten minutes to two on the steering wheel. The Society for Compliance and Mediocrity. That's who they are, ma. They have their headquarters at the seafront in Clontarf. It's a square building with no doors, no windows. It used to be a public toilet until they sealed it off completely so that nobody could get in and strangle the bastards. That's it? From now on, someone else can teach you to drive. What are we driving today, Daddy? A Humber Snooper Snipe. You mean Super Snipe? Snooper Snipe. How do you find the sneering on the Snooper Snipe? Snarvelous. Though I have nothing to compare it to. You have nothing with which to compare it. Snorry, I have nothing with which to compare it. And so, grammar lesson concluded for now. You let me drive to my heart's content down the windy back roads of East Cork whilst you orchestrate our whistling duet. <laughs> By 1965, you have formulated a plan for my life. The outline is... Desi goes to university, Desi gets an honours degree. Ideally, Desi adds a master's, possibly a doctorate, and after that, Desi will have realised that show business is not a realistic career option. A neat, tidy plan, you're thinking. Meantime, I have formulated a plan myself. Here's how George Bernard Shaw might have explained the rationale behind my thinking. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. But despite Shaw being on my side, you have an advantage. You know living people who can back up your arguments. Exhibit A, Professor Peter Dempsey, a Franciscan friar, head of psychology in UCC. Father Dempsey, by doing some overly elaborate tests, establishes that my interests are music and people, in that order. So he dismisses the music completely as highly impractical and, based on my interest in people, directs me towards psychology. All right, but it wouldn't have been your first choice. So we move on to Exhibit B. Freddie Holland, my maths teacher. Mr. Holland, do you think that Desi could do an honours maths degree? Teacher, teacher, I know the answer to that. To be fair, Dad, you did make a great effort to come halfway. I had a rock and roll band. We rehearsed in the big green shed which you'd built out the back. Girl, I want to be with you in the daytime, all day and all of the night. Noises from the jungle, as you called it. Still, out of the blue, one Saturday afternoon before rehearsal, you approached me. Desi, how would you like me to manage your band? I'd love it. I didn't say that immediately, but I saw the advantages. It would mean the band was being taken seriously. It would mean we'd have to work harder because we'd be getting better gigs. Those lads at the band could do with working harder. Of course, it would probably also mean I'd have to give four hours studying calculus for every one hour rock and roll. we talk about that later. All right, Dad, I'll put it to the band. They've always taken my lead. Desi boy, what are you thinking? Your dad, he'd make a fight manager. For the girls, choir. We're a rock and roll band, boy. The big problem, Desi, is 
Your dad don't like cursing. He'd be hanging around saying, Language, lady. And you'd only have said flip. He wouldn't be around all the time, lads. Take this he look la. One from any fella and the same fella be out on his ear. It's not shagging on, boy. There'll be no dirty jokes neither and no groupies. I walk out of the shed and as I head back towards the house, you were walking towards me along the clothesline path. We stop face to face and I so badly want to say one thing but have to say another. Dad, the band don't want you as our manager. Fair enough. You turn and walk back along the clothesline path. You open the kitchen door, step inside and close the door silently behind you. You could have fought back. You could have pointed out your vast experience in management, though to be fair you had pointed that out when you made the original offer. But you could have done something more than just walk away saying fair enough. You could have reminded me that these boys were not serious career musicians, and if I carry them to a lucky success, they take it. But they weren't going to work for us. Their priorities were up their arses, and you knew it, and I knew it, but we couldn't discuss that because a wide chasm had arisen between us. We who had done so much together since I was born. When I was six, you took me down to Glenflesk fishing. You put me on the back of a Lambretta scooter. Foot, 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 and we drove all the way to Kerry. It was heaven. Well, mostly. Yeah. One morning you left me in the middle of a field because you had to go back to the house where we were staying to retrieve the small fishing bag. That small fishing bag, which I'd forgotten to bring that morning. I'm standing in the middle of this huge field, crying my eyes out, straining my ears for the foot, foot, foot of your Lambretta scooter coming back to rescue me from the bull. The bull! Which I've imagined on the other side of the hill. Dad, there's a bull! Then I hear, foot, 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 you're here. You pick me up in your arms and say, I thought you were such a big boy that you'd be fine without me. And I say, I'll never be that big, Daddy. I'll never be that big. Mr. Holland, you've been Desi's maths teacher for a few years now. And you know the Cork University degree course in mathematics as well as anybody does. Do you think that Desi could get himself an honours degree in mathematics? It was perfect the way Freddy slowly drew his pipe out from his inside pocket and without lighting it, placed it between his lips. More like a drama teacher than a mathematician. Could he do an honours degree? He could, Mr. Walls, but he won't. A few minutes later, as we walked down Washington Street on our way to Bulch the Culch to get our hair cut, the little hair we have. You declare, isn't that wonderful, Desi? Mr. Holland thinks you could do it. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. <laughs> Ma, can you drive me to the station? It's all right, Claire. I'll drive him. She's happy about that. She's been going all day and now she's knitting in front of the fire. She says thank you to you and then to me. Try not to lose your coat on the train, Desi. Again? All right, ma, I'll try. You're waiting for me. I follow you out. We drive down the laneway without a word. 
I'm now in my second year in college. Well, my first year repeated. You turn right onto the main road. Neither of us speak at all until we're halfway to the station. Then you say, Were you out already this week? Yes. Haven't I told you I don't want you going out more than once a week during college term? I don't answer. You pull in at the station. I get out. I don't look back. I slam the car door behind me. Did I mention they fenced off the Glen McNask waterfall now? You can no longer climb down the rocks beside the crashing water which inspired the river. I called Claire about the river. She said there was never a recording of it. She said manners have searched through your old tapes and found other music of yours, but not the river. Claire thought she remembered a bit of it. You showed it to her once. I, I looked up the Glen McNass River on Google. You'd have enjoyed Google. The Glen McNask River in County Wicklow is only 13.88 kilometres long. It begins high up on the southeast quadrant of Mullochley Vaughan Mountain, the second tallest of the Wicklow Mountains at 849 metres, then flows down the surrounding mountains to the waterfall top at 350 metres. The waterfall consists of three staggered drops down to 270 metres. Vroom, vroom, vroom. The river then continues through the valley and joins the Avon Moor or Big River at Lara. That is later joined by the Avon Beg or Small River and all of those become the Avoca, which then flows into the Irish Sea at Arklow. I can see you climbing up Mother Clevon to follow the stream from its first dribble then winding down through rocky terrain, gathering strength as it flows, forging its way over little rapids, then crashing down in magnificent abandon once, twice, three times, hitting the bottom with a flourish of white bubbles. It becomes calm and peaceful as it flows gently on. The psychiatrist asked why I had come to see him. And I said, because I had feck all else to do, doctor, except maybe jump in the River Lee with a large rock around my neck. What's that suit you're wearing, Des? It seems a bit loose. Have you lost weight recently? It's my dad's suit. The tie and the shirt, too. I wear these clothes to work. Work? Aren't you at college studying philosophy? I also work as a management trainee for an electrical wholesaler in Cork City. Sounds like a promising position. Oh, it's a wonderful position, Doctor. I secure the appointment ahead of 400 other applicants. It's all about breeding, Doctor. With racehorses, the value of a coat depends on what classics his sire has won. With management trainees, your value depends on whether your father was a big shot in the oil refinery or your uncle is the Minister for Finance in the Fine of Oil Government. Tell me a bit about your dad. He was a beekeeper. He was a boat builder. He was a carpenter, an electrician. He was a bricklayer. He built tennis courts, swimming pools, and house extensions. 
He assembled sheds, fixed washing machines, cookers and fridges. He could dance to silly songs and a pair of baggy britches. A horse, a horse. No, the other one, a donkey. A donkey, a donkey. No, the other one, a horse. He took us fishing, hiking, played football in the garden. Invented silly games anybody could take part in. He would bring home chocolate biscuits, usually on Friday. We'd flock around his car as he drove into the driveway. He made a slideshow of a day out and set it to a soundtrack. It was like a movie. He built caravans and trailers and grew tomatoes in his greenhouse. We sold them down to fruit heads. He built a train track which ran around the four walls of my bedroom and fixed it when it broke. He played piano, wrote songs, the lyrics and the notes, poetry and prose, and when the need arose, he could rescue neighbours' children from underneath bread vans. He had a plan to sail his trimaran across the seven seas, and in our house we never needed an encyclopedia because he knew everything except what to do with me. He planted trees which he told us would reach up to the sky. That was a lie. He would make up stories which could last forever. He was outrageously, ridiculously clever. When he'd get cross, he would not stay cross for long. You'd talk for a while and then he would hug you like a daddy bear and tell you that he loved you. And I have never known anybody like him. Mammy, 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 will you listen, will you listen, will you listen, ma? The doctor did not tell you there was nothing wrong with me. What he meant was, ma, you see, he was expecting a stereotypical Irish mother. He had a little spiel ready for that kind of mother. He was expecting, Oh, my poor son, what are you telling me, doctor? He's not crazy, is he? Asher, I won't be telling anyone he's been to see a psychiatrist. Oh, no. Between you and me, doctor, he's not completely nuts, is he? So the doctor's going to tell that woman there's nothing wrong with her son. Of course he is. Then you turn up. Tall and elegant and not the slightest bit gullible. And he's thinking he should change tack for you. But he only has one reassure the mammy speech. So he lays it on you. Oh, Mrs. Walsh, I want to assure you, there's nothing wrong with Desi. In fact, I don't know why he came to me at all. So naturally now you're not going to accept my story about him saying I needed to take time out and rest at home with my mother. No, you're going to tell me to pull myself together and go to London with my cousin Anne. She'll keep an eye on me and see I don't get into trouble. Lovely. She's 19 and I'm 22. What's wrong with this picture? So I walk the streets of London Searching for Dad Diddle Dee Diddly, daddly, daddly, diddly, searching for daddly dee. A little bit down, sad as a clown, but nothing the matter with me. You're listening to Searching for Daddly Dee on Drama on News Talk. So I walk the streets of London. Searching for dad diddle dee Diddly daddly daddly diddly Searching for daddly dee A little bit down sad as a clown But nothing the matter with me Steak and onions, 45 pence Fish and chips, 37 Lamb cutlets. Apple pie. 
The table in the corner of that restaurant there, right by the exit, I've checked it out a couple of times. I read once where you're technically not obliged by law to pay for a meal at a restaurant. It's offered to you as a guest. The price is merely a suggestion. I believe in theory that's true, but I haven't yet put it to the test. Ah, feck. People are now sitting at my table, a young couple, looking around them as though not sure of their surroundings. What are they up to? Not planning, no. They're not going to do what I was thinking about doing. If they try that, the manager would watch that table for the rest of the day. I thought of it first, kids. Pay your bill. God, I'm hungry. If I did bump into you, Daddy, here in London, to cover the awkwardness of the situation, us just finding each other like that, I, I think maybe, before explaining anything to me, like how you had managed to swim ashore, or you'd taken a different plane, or you'd had a parachute, and how you'd since temporarily lost your memory, before any of those details were discussed, you'd open the conversation casually, quoting maybe P.G. Woodhouse. If all the girls that Bingo loved were laid end to end, son, they'd stretch from Hyde Park Corner to Piccadilly. Even further, Dad, some of them were pretty tall girls. Yesterday, I walked the nine-tenths of a mile from Hyde Park Corner to Piccadilly. I walked slowly and observantly. I watched and walked. Walked and watched. And a few times I did a double take when a grey coat or a wisp of black hair caught my eye. But when I looked more closely, it was always somebody else. Now I'm watching those two kids from the restaurant. They've finished eating, stood up and walked nonchalantly out the door, having gone nowhere near the till. Listen, kids, there's 500 yards to the tube station around that bend, and the quickest route is to stay tight to the buildings. Now run! What are you dawdling for? Standing on the pavement, looking around you. The boss is coming out! Oh, no. They didn't run. <laughs> How's he going to handle this? He's hugging and kissing them. And they're speaking Italian. Ah, he's not just the boss. He's the girl's dad or something, or the boy's dad. Just two kids and a dad. You gave all your two kids and a dad. There's a dark figure at the bottom of the stairs, a smile on his conspiratorial face. Aren't you two supposed to be in bed? Claire answers because she's smarter than I am. Yes, we were in bed, Daddy, but the music kept keeping us awake. You want to hear a story? Rumpelstiltskin! He hopped away one leg and they never saw him again. I'll go across to that restaurant. I'll tell that nice Italian gentleman my predicament. I'll offer to wash up for him or something. I know how to wash up. Remember that Sunday afternoon? There was a huge crowd in our house for lunch. Then everyone was going out somewhere and you offered to stay home and do the wash up. I didn't care where anyone was going. I grabbed a tea towel and said, I'll dry. And so began the longest wash-up in the history of the Walls family. We talked philosophy and films. Films. I got it now. Films. We talked rugby and science. We quoted Spike Milligan and Sylvester the Cat. 
We discussed the size of the Milky Way and the meaning of infinity and Einstein's theory of relativity. Your washing up only got a fraction of your mind and it suffered. Every half-washed plate you put in the draining board, I slipped quietly back into the soapy water, careful not to disturb your train of thought. For four hours we talked, and I would gladly have got another four. We left the world a better place that Sunday afternoon. And though it was not our primary intention, we also left the kitchen spotless. I'm going to offer to wash up for that man. Sir, Signor, if I could, Signor, would it be possible that... Would you consider... Can I use your facilities? The toilets? Grazie. Now, I'm standing at the corner of the street, my back to the wall. I'm watching faces. I'm avoiding faces. I want to reach out to people. I want to hide away. A man stops. He looks at me with kind eyes. Then putting 50 pence into my open hand, he says, You're a little bit down on your luck, son. My eyes follow that man until he's out of sight. You know, Dad, over the years I've figured something out. It's all about passion. If we don't follow our passion, for what do we come into this world? We may as well come as some other person or not come at all. I had no passion for mathematics, so why get a degree in it? You've spoken often of the passion of Christ. In that story, did the young man's father and mother constantly warn him that if he followed his passion, he might end up getting himself crucified? No, that he'd be better off sticking to the carpentry and making a steady living, or going to university and studying Greek literature, rather than standing on the sides of mountains proclaiming who was blessed, and annoying those not mentioned. Did his dad say, take the safer option, son? We are only saying this for your own good. No, his parents stayed out of it. It was his life. So he went around preaching, saying things which brought great joy to the multitudes, but pissed some people right off. And he did end up crucified. Ah, but that's not the whole story. What if his rising from the dead were symbolic? What if the message were, be true to yourself? Whatever the consequences, follow your passion. Hold no fear of living nor dying. They can crucify you till they're blue in the face, but they cannot touch what you are. I mean, take you, Daddy. That's why I can talk to you now. I can feel the passion with which you lived. It's here. It's in the room. Bless our children, dearest Lord, so then may we see them sit about thy feet as once in Galilee. Powerful. But I find it sweet that your best-remembered piece is not that but this which was for your children. Harry Lemon and Jimmy the Jug went for a sail in a rickety tug. They sailed away from Dollymount Strand to look for the treasure of Elephant Land. There were a gang of us gathered around the dining room table enjoying your mid-afternoon recital. 
The ship was a mile and a half from the shore, when the lemon was sicker than ever before, and Jimmy the Jog hanging over the side with a pain in his head and another inside. We are oblivious to what drama may be happening outside. Next day they were better and up on their legs, so they put into Bray for a dozen of eggs. The weather so fine and the ocean so blue, they were sailing past Wexford at twenty to two. That's when six-year-old Paddy, who's been playing out in the front garden, comes rushing in. Tony Hayes was riding Kevin's bike. He got knocked down by the breadfruit. He's stuck under it. You leap into action. Breathe, get a Dunlop pillow mattress from upstairs. Peter, beside the boat, you'll find the big carjack. Patricia, rush over and get David Saunders. Desi, run down for Mr. Higgins. Tell him to come immediately. Eileen, grab a blanket and pillow. Claire, call an ambulance. Mammy Claire, give the bread man a cup of tea. The rest of you, follow me. Twelve-year-old Tony Hayes is under the van, bent over like a rubber doll, face between his feet, his hair ripped off, head half scalped from the impact, but alive. You check that the handbrake of the van is firmly on and then call us to action. David, Mr. Higgins, Desi, all you boys, lift. You slide the jack under the car and start turning the handle hard, David pushing with you like a supporting rugby forward. We can see Tony unwinding as the van rises higher, 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 till any morning it would tumble over on the extremely solid Mr. Higgins, who is supporting it from the other side. You slip in under the van and gently free the boy, handing him out to David. Three minutes, 58 seconds after Paddy rushed in, Tony Hayes is lying on a mattress, a warm blanket over him. Once the ambulance has taken Tony away, you bring little Paddy to the living room. You get down on both your knees, look him in the eye and say, Tell me, son, what exactly happened? I am passing and I interrupt. Daddy, that's a waste of time asking a six-year-old. His evidence is inadmissible in court. You snap at me. Don't tell me how to talk to my family. Well, I am 18 and things to do anyway, so I walk away. Did you know, 40 years later, that Paddy, nearing the end of his short life, would tell me that was the only time he could remember ever having his father's full attention. Ever. He was prone to exaggeration, but still. There's a place I go where I grew up. Sometimes I need to be there. I pull my car into the laneway beside the house and park under the trees. I often get out and walk up and down alongside the garden. The tennis court is gone, the swimming pool, the glass house, the old green shed, all gone, but the house itself looks the same. I hear the wind blowing through the top of our trees. We planted those trees, you, Claire, and I. They were little saplings. You said they'd grow to be 40 feet tall, and they are. Almost 40 years later, they are. You said as big as Mrs. O'Mahony's trees across the laneway, and they are, they are. I left this house, finally, in 69. Ma telling me not to cry, and she wasn't crying. Could be that if she once started, she'd never stop. She wandered away from here. The memories were too much. 
That day, as I left the house for good, Ma handed me a tape. It was marked The River by Desmond P. Walls. This was what I told her I wanted to take with me, though I had nothing to play it on in my bedsit. But Ma gave it to me anyway, which means I'm definitely the one who lost it. You know, Dad, the pity is I could have settled all our rows before they ever began. If I'd had the guts to just go, leave home, break away. Back in 66, the day I left school, I could have gone off and found work, any work to begin with. I've often fantasized, like in fairy tales. The father sees the son off at the front door of a little white cottage. The young man with a bindle over his shoulder, a pocket of cloth at the end of a stick, and all his worldly goods in it. The father imparts words of wisdom to see the lad on his way. If you can dream, but not make dreams your master. If you can think, yet not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster. And treat those two impostors just the same. Didn't happen like that for us, no. But one quiet night in Belgium in 98, as I fooled around on an old piano, a song came to me. Take this line. Listen to the river's darkest night. That's the Ockram River. We were small kids in the caravan you had built. Claire and I would leave our fishing lines trailing in the stream overnight and you'd run down with us in the early light to see if we'd caught a trout. And I always wondered what the river would sound like in the middle of the night in the dark when nobody was there. I never had the courage to sneak out of the caravan when everybody was asleep to find out. And it's like that. If you want to know what something is, you've got to have the courage to go and find out. So at 17, I didn't need to prove I was right. I only needed the courage to go. You needed the courage to let me. You could have seen me off, not from some little white cottage in a fairy tale, but from the door of this house, telling me to listen to the call of the birds in the trees, listen to the fall of the rain on the ground, the hum of the humming bees, and the buzz in a busy cafe. Listen to the river's darkest night Waking at the dawn to the rebirth of life Hear the wind on the road But most of all, listen to your heart Can you feel the dance? Step into the dance Feel it as you dance Sweet rhythms of life Light across the room Blight spirit of the dance Feel it in your heart Sweet rhythms of life and Share with light-heartedness Caring and love No matter how much Or how little you have Find peace in the silence Joy in the world Learn to be happy and learn how to laugh at it all. And don't be afraid of the cold or the heartache. Don't be afraid of trouble or pain. Breathe in the life and the love all around you. And if you fall down, stand up again and down. This laneway, where I stand between our trees and Mrs. O'Mani's trees, 
This laneway where you pulled Tony Hayes from under the bread van. This laneway where we walked on a bright sunny day when you said, Summer's here. It's the first of May. And since then, every first of May, be it mist or hail, I recall that bright sunny day. This laneway where your sister Pat would say to me, Desi, you haven't cried. It's been three days and you haven't cried. This laneway, down which you drove me in silence on the evening of the 23rd of March, 1968, where we turned into the road down there towards the railway station. You would say, have you been out already this week? And I would say yes, and you would say, haven't I told you I don't want you going out more than once a week during college term? And I would say, nothing. I would wait until you would pull the car in by the gateway to the railway station. I would step out of the car and, without even a glance back, I would slam the door behind me. This laneway, up which I would walk the following afternoon, the birds singing in Mrs. O'Mahony's trees, the sun shining on my back. There would be a blue sky like our first day of May, though this would be the 24th of March. I would have seen that bright blue sky while standing on the village bridge with my friends after Mass, one lone cloud in the sky. This laneway, from where I would turn into that driveway, and noticing the front door to the house slightly ajar, would decide to go in that way. And there I would find Mammy sitting on the phone seat, the phone receiver not in her hand but swinging loosely by its cord. I would pick it up and your brother Arthur, a manager at Erlingus, would say, Des, your father's plane is missing over the Irish Sea. And I would remember nothing more for a while. Peter says I told him the news, so I must have. Bertie, another of your brothers, flew down from Dublin. Passing over Wicklow on this clear day, he saw the mountain paths along which you'd hiked, the roads you'd cycled, the rivers where you'd fished. He saw the Glenmacnask waterfall and remembered how it had inspired the river. An hour later, Mammy, having spotted Bertie coming up the driveway, opened the front door and said, Bertie, any news? And Bertie, as he folded her in his arms, told her, No, Claire, no news, and there won't be. And at that moment the world, which had been crumbling, fell apart. And Granny had come in from her granny flat with Grandad, and as she stumbled against the washing machine, she said to him, Daddy, we'll never see our baby again. Pussycat, won't you come out this evening? Dr. McCarthy gave Mammy a sedative, and she slept fitfully. First time she awoke, she realized in her foggy state that something dreadful had happened, something really dreadful, but she thought, I'll talk to Desi about it, and it will be all right. And she went out cold again. Later she woke again and thought, something unbearable has happened, but it'll be all right because I'll talk to Desi about it and it'll be all right. The third time she awoke, 
she remembered what it was had happened. And out in the kitchen helping out were Auntie Pat and Auntie Phil and Auntie Maura and Auntie Una and Pearl and Sheila and Mary and Sadie and Breathe, all aunties there to help. And someone said, we should check on Claire. Someone check on Mammy Claire. And they looked up. And there she was, standing at the kitchen door, and it was as though they heard her say, Thank you, everyone. I'll take it from here. And she did. For 38 and a half years. And now, I'm sitting here in the hospital with my back to the window, watching her struggle for breath. And as usual, I can't help her much. I couldn't then and I can't now. She will leave us tonight, if not tomorrow, Wednesday. When Peter and I have a show in Kilkenny and the show must go on. If anyone knows that, it's man knows it. The show must go on. I'll take it from here, she said, and she did. Something has come through the window from behind me, and for an instant there's a tiny ball of golden light in front of my eyes. Now it shoots over and disappears into Ma's chest, straight to her heart. And I know. Look, whenever we see anything outside of the rational, reasonable world we've created and to which we've become attached, we rush to reconstruct it in a manner which lets it sit easily within our limited vision. Maybe we don't immediately dismiss what we've experienced, but soon it becomes uncomfortable and we discard it. For me, this tiny golden ball was accompanied by a certainty. And I made an immediate resolve that when that certainty would fade, as it inevitably would, I would keep in my heart the memory of what that certainty was that you had come to take your sweetheart home. Searching for Dadley D was recorded at Creation Studios County Kerry by Terry Gordon, who produced with Desi Walls and Owen Brennan. Dramaturgy by Anne Shanahan. The play was written and performed by Desi Walls and is dedicated to all who've had loved ones whipped away without notice.